Well, before we get into the word here, I just want to make a little statement here that uh, maybe get into the mind of Cody. Each month, I have this question before the Lord. I can't wait to get to heaven. I've got multiple questions to ask him. I'm sure some of you have the same thing. But each month, this question comes before me, and I go, Lord, why was I not in the military? That sounds maybe weird to you, but most of the men in my family have been in the military, from officers to enlisted, and I always wonder, why? So there's, there's twofold reasons. One is because of, it's in my genes, everyone's been in the military, so why aren't you in the military? So once in a while, I'll be, once a month, literally, I'll be like, Lord, why wasn't I in the military? Even for a couple years. Another reason why that's on my heart, and, and I think of that each month, is I have such honor for those who have served. And tomorrow is a special day for veterans who have served, and we want to take a moment and thank you and honor you and uh, it is a beautiful day out, isn't it? So if you served in the military, whether combat or not, if you could just stand right now. We have a few, we have a handful. Wow, look at this. Thank you. trying to see who's all here so I can shake your hand on the way out. I encourage you, young families, train your kids to thank the vets, right? Thank you for serving. When I get to heaven, I'll find out why, and the Lord's going to say, I put you in a different type of warfare. I'm like, you're right, you're right. Let's pray before we get into the Word. Lord, we do thank you for those who have served and are serving right now some protecting this state and this land that we live in. The freedoms that we have seem to be at risk each day. The political calamities around us are just perplexing sometimes. We thank you for those in this congregation who have served. Some of these men and women that stood up, I know their positions, what they did. Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine, Coast Guard, and National Guard, I know what they did, and Lord, we thank you for them. You're very honored. They are here. And Lord, for those who are still serving overseas, we pray your hand of protection upon them. We pray that you be with them, that they get to be at places that we cannot be, and they could share your light to not only those who are in their company, but those who they are serving to protect. And Lord, I thank you that you have brought us all under the authority of Jesus Christ. And with that authority, we are engaged in a spiritual war all around us. And Lord, may we be made strong in the power of your might. For it is your strength, your might, your power that works in and through us. And Spirit of God, move in our hearts this morning as we look in your scriptures again. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. The Bible is history. So if you've got a Bible, get it ready because we're going to be looking in the Bible. The Bible is history. And we've been going through some of the historical aspects of the Old Testament in our series, Christ in the Old Testament. But the Bible is more than just history. For instance, I grab this book off my shelf this morning 
plagues of our fathers. I've got a whole bookcase just of military history. This is a great historical account of the flag that was raised in Iwo Jima. One of the guys is from my hometown, so definitely I have this book and I've read through it. The Bible is more than just a historical account. The Bible is divine history. The author is God. This is a supernatural book, which you hold in your hands, hopefully not on a phone, get a real book. This is divine history. God is the author. All Scripture is God-breathed. But it's more than just divine history. It's divine redemptive history. It's divine, it's history, but it's redemptive. There is a redemptive focus in Scripture. We've been seeing that, Christ in the Old Testament. There's this redeeming aspect where God, even in Genesis chapter 3, gave this glimpse that there's going to be salvation coming it's divine redemptive history it's redemptive focus that is progressively being revealed as we read through the old testament and that's what we've been doing we've been going through the old testament looking at different aspects seeing christ who will redeem seeing christ in the old testament we're not doing a survey of the old testament we're not taking each Sunday looking at that, we're looking more at the redemptive aspects of it. And God foreshadowed the redemption found in Christ. A lot of these things we've been seeing through the sacrificial system, through the priesthood, through different people that show up. There's this redemptive aspect of the Old Testament. Different types. And in the Old Testament we realize that they haven't fully grasped what this would be like. They didn't understand how this redemption would be. And we know that it achieves its full disclosure in Christ. The coming of Christ. His work on the cross. His death and resurrection. And we as a church have been following this plan of redemption in our series Christ in the Old Testament. Mainly looking at different passages that progressively reveal the beauty of who Christ is. And that promise and fulfillment of that. It's easy for us to do this on this side of the New Testament. But for those in the Old Testament, it was very odd because they would get glimpses of it, but they weren't sure how this would be. And then as it became more clear, things might have changed to a fuller extent. I've given you examples like in the late 1800s, a father promising a horse, but then when horsepower came out, he got a vehicle far greater, or from a typewriter to a computer. Let me give you another example of what this is like. Last month, my wife and I were able to celebrate, even though this was from um, July, we were able to get away and celebrate our 20th year anniversary. And we had three days just to get away. And we were very blessed to go to Green Bay the first night and go see the Packers play. We were excited about that. And here's a picture of us right before we got there. Uh, we, we got there early, and I said, hey, let's go to Sammy's Pizza. In my mind, I'm like, okay, it's just about like five blocks just south of Lambeau Field. Let's go there and eat. So we had this date before we went, and she was excited. I was excited. And there, right we were sitting there, I said, hey, take a picture of us. And then I said this to my wife. 
And notice how we, out, we, we, we do this. When we go out, we never sit across from her. I'm going to hold her hand. I want to sit next to her. I said this right before we got our food. I said, this is where I first fell in love with you. And then as soon as I said that, Amber had this inquisitive look in her face. She looked around and, and realized and kind of looked at this place and realized that thinking through the different places and phases of our relationship that we had never ever been to Sammy's Pizza in Green Bay. This is the first time we were ever in this building. So she's like, what are you talking about? This is where I first fell in love with you. In fact, it was true. It was the first time I had ever been at this building. So what did I mean when I said, this is where I first fell in love with you? I was looking and thinking about the different phases and periods of my life even before I met her. I was looking back at the events that led to the unfolding of our meeting and our marriage. And Sammy's Pizza was a part of that. Let me explain. When I was a kid, as I've said the last two weeks, when I was a kid, I grew up in a house where parents fought often. It wasn't a pretty place. And then when I was 13 years old, my parents got a divorce. And through that, I made this commitment when I was 13 years old. In the midst of all of that, if I ever got married, I would not live in a marriage like they had. I made that resolve very serious in my life. I was like, I am not going to live like that. And at that time, my mother had the kids, my brother and I had us two, and she picked up three jobs to support us. Worked all day when we were at school, then had two night jobs. And one of those places was delivering pizzas from Sammy's Pizza in Appleton. And I would go there after school, get on the bus or get on my bicycle. Yeah, it was the bicycle. I didn't drive the bus. I'd do the city bus once in a while when it was snowing, but I loved being on my bicycle. So I'd get on my bicycle downtown Appleton and sit at Sammy's Pizza. And there I'd sit in the booth, do my homework, and enjoy the smell of pizza. And as I would do that, often in the middle of my homework, I would wander over to the jukebox. Where's this all going, Pastor Cody? Just, just listen. That's what my wife thought when I said, this is where I first fell in love with you. What, what are you talking about? So here I am, 13 years old, doing my homework, and I would go to the jukebox with a pocket full of quarters. You know what a jukebox is? Kids, Google it. You'll figure out what that is. And there I would just, that, that thing ate so many quarters from me. But the most frequent song I would play was by a band called Journey. Anybody know who Journey is? Okay, back in the day. They had a song called Faithfully. Came out in 1983. And I would play that song again and again to remind me and reinforce the resolve that someday when I get married, no matter what happens, I will be faithful to the covenant. So as a little boy, 13 years old, that song reflected my dedication to have a good marriage and be faithful to God and my wife. 
And on my wedding day, I almost played that song. I know how to play it, even most of it today. I was ready to play it, but we decided not to do that. We did worship songs instead, instead of a song by Journey. See, it was back at Sammy's Pizza when I was 13 years old. I began to discover what it was like in my mind. Even though I had no idea who Amber Osborne was, I made a resolve. This is the kind of woman I want to marry. This is what my marriage is going to be like, and it will be faithful. It wasn't always clear to me as I grew older. I had no idea, again, who Amber was. I did not fully grasp what my future would be like. But as time went on, it was revealed progressively the type of woman that I wanted to marry. And as I grew older, it became clear, this is the kind of woman I want to be with. And when I met Amber... She was the one. And that was the one I was waiting for. This is the one. This is the moment. And the promises that I made even before I met her became clear and revealed and unfolded in front of me. And it was a fulfillment found in my wife Amber. This was an unfolding progressive nature of my relationship with Amber even before I met her. That's what I meant sitting that night in Green Bay saying, this is where I first fell in love with you, at a Sammy's Pizza. It wasn't that Sammy's Pizza. It was the one in Apple. And it wasn't even that time. It was before that. The redemptive nature in Scripture is not revealed all at once. It is progressive. God did not reveal himself all completely in Genesis. We understand who God is. He is sovereign over all things. He is the creator of all things. But he doesn't reveal who he is all at once. He revealed himself to his people over many centuries at different periods of time, showing information who he is, built upon not contradicting what was revealed in the past. And this is what many call progressive revelation. And we as a church have seen that in the Old Testament, God reveals himself and he's been showing himself more and more what this looks like. Not only of who he is, but his plan of redeeming people. The Old Testament is not just a preparation of Jesus. It is the revealing of who he is. Again, Look at that sign. He wants to be known for who he is. God reveals himself who he is. And also his plan of redemption. And that will be found in Christ. Or stated another way. In the Old Testament, they had faith that looked forward to a knowledge and hope in the promise found in the covenants given by God pointing to the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to this promise. And the New Testament and beyond, they and we look backward. In faith, we look backwards toward a knowledge of Christ and His fulfillment. It's much easier for us on this side of the cross to look back and go, oh, that's how it all mapped out. Just like I was 20 years after I got married with my wife going, oh, this is where I first fell. Oh, this is how it's mapped out. But when I was 13, I had no idea. In the Old Testament, they're looking forward to this promise. 
God's final revelation came in the beauty of His Son, Jesus Christ. Seen in His person and work in this plan of redemption. And remember, it's going to be a two-part. It's His first coming and second coming. In fact, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews. you got your Bible in your hand. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Again, the three books that I say that we will most often look at in this two-year series in the New Testament will be Hebrews, Galatians, and Romans. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So here we have the talking about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in different ways, he spoke to them. He showed them. He began to reveal himself and his plan of redemption to them in various ways, in different periods, through different covenants, through different people, through different prophets. Look at verse 2. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. We as a church have been going through the Old Testament. We've seen how God has revealed himself, as this part says, at many times, in many ways in the past. Adam received a bit of who God was. It wasn't the full disclosure. He received a knowledge of God. Truth in the beginning. Then God spoke more fully in a beautiful way, unfolding his plan of redemption, starting it in the purposes of that to Abraham. We saw that in Genesis, chapter 12, 15, 17. This covenant promise. Then he revealed himself in a grand way to Moses through the law. We saw that the purpose of the law was to provide for them, to protect them, to point them to Jesus, and to prove our love, their love for them. Many of the laws of the, that were given to the Israelites were for them only. And they were put aside when Jesus came along. The law could not overturn the promise. It wasn't, that wasn't its purpose. Rather, it reinforced, the law reinforced Israel's hope for the promise to come. That Messiah, that seed to come. And this we see in Galatians chapter 3. And recently we've been seeing a fuller understanding of what that's like and how that promise and purpose would look like in the life and the covenant given to David. This prophetic hope is coming and unfolding in these stories. In fact, from now on, a lot of it will be this aspect of it's coming. There's hope in the Old Testament. And we are tracking the unfolding of truth more and more. More truth, fuller truth. As one writer says this, progressive revelation is not a movement from air to truth, but from truth to truth, from lesser to greater, from provisional to the 
permanent, from the inadequate to the perfect. In fact, we find this in Romans 16. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 16. Got my thin Bible here, so the pages are... Romans 16. Starting with verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey Him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. See, it's been revealed, this mystery for the Old Testament. It's been a mystery, but now the mystery is revealed. And it's found in Christ. And I said this at the beginning of our series as we started this last January. Each Sunday, we're going to go on this journey. We're going to be looking at different stories. We're going to be traveling centuries, sometimes just an hour of time in the Bible. Maybe we're going to cruise through a lot of stuff. We'll be going through the different parts of the Old Testament, but every Sunday, we will arrive at the same place, Jesus Christ. So now let's take our Bibles and turn to our next section of Scripture, found after 2 Kings first chronicles so take your bibles and turn to first chronicles we've been going at a rapid pace and we're going to continue to do this when i looked up the i have a one of the popular books i use in my office this may surprise you is a thesaurus i use that often as i think through different words and i use a thesaurus going i am that's not the right word i want to find and oh here's the word when i google the word or look on the take a look at this picture here when I look on thesaurus.com, I'm not sure what this one is. I type in the word historian. There's a variety of words that show up. But one of the words is chronicler. Not a word we use often. This is one, a person who is like a historian. They would write stuff down. They would document, write the different accounts, the different historical events that are going on. In fact, I'm holding up our newspaper from Rice Lake. What's it called? Chronotype. This is to be a written document. There are many chroniclers in this who write, now we call them reporters, who write all the different accounts that's happening in Rice Lake and Barron County. One of my favorite parts is going, what happened 100 years ago? Sally Joel's cow got on Main Street, and we, they found it and brought it back to the farm. You know, Stuff like that. This is a newspaper that documents the happenings of our era. So now we're getting to the point in the Old Testament where, remember the storyline, there's 11 books that cover the storyline. And towards the end there, we got First and Second Samuel. We got Sam, Eli Samuel, then, then all this stuff that's happening, and then there's going to be Saul and David, and then we got First and Second Kings. 
That ends the storyline. And then we got First and Second Chronicles. This is a retelling of that. Back in the days, they didn't have technology like we do, so they would have a chronicler who would sit in the corner of the throne room at times and document everything. Or they would go to different battlefields or different important times, and they would go to locations and write the events of the day. In fact, in the Jewish Bible, in the Hebrew here, for this, this is called the records of the day. This is First and Second Chronicles. Because we're going through the Old Testament at such a rapid pace, I want to show you a clip from Right Now Media. How many of you know what Right Now Media is? Okay, those of you that don't have your hands up, we have provided for you, as a church, this great resource. In fact, a lot of people are doing Bible studies, looking at the videos, apologetics, stuff for their children about the Bible. This is free for you online. It's like a Netflix for children. In fact, do we have a picture, an example of that, or are we just going to go into the video? Just the video. Oh, there we go. So here is an example of Right Now Media. So I encourage you, if you don't have that, talk. Don't talk to me because I don't know how to do it. But talk to someone else on staff. They, they know all this stuff. I don't know what's going on. So we got this, the Bible Project. They go through each book of the Bible, and they show you and kind of give you, here's the overview. And I would encourage you, as we go to the next book, look on our schedule. We have a map, of, uh, a calendar of where we're going through this series, Christ in the Old Testament. Look at the next one. Here's an example of this. Take a look at this little video clip. The books of First and Second Chronicles. While they're two separate books in our Bibles, that division is not original. Due to scroll length, the book was divided in two, but it was written as one book with one coherent storyline. Now, in our English Bibles, Chronicles comes after the books of Samuel and Kings, and most of Chronicles is actually repeat content from those books. And so most modern readers, when they come to Chronicles, they think, wait a minute, I just read all of this, and so they skip it. And that's a shame, because this book is really unique and important in the Bible. In the traditional Jewish ordering of the Bible, Chronicles is actually the last book because it summarizes all of the Jewish scriptures. The first word in the book is Adam, the first character at the beginning of the story, and then the last paragraph announces the return of Israel from exile. Now we don't know who wrote this book, but we can tell from details within it, it was produced by somebody who lived a couple hundred years after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. Now for this author, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt some time ago, and as we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah, things were not going well. The great prophetic hope was that the city and the temple would be rebuilt, that God would come to live among his people, the messianic king would come, and all the nations would come live under his peaceful rule, and none of that has happened. And so the author of Chronicles has reshaped these stories of David and Solomon and the kings of the past in order to provide a message of hope for the future. And we'll see that he's designed this book to emphasize two clear themes. First, the hope of the coming messianic king, and second, the hope for a new temple. Let's just dive in and you'll see these themes all over the book. First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogies, long lists of names. And you'll read these and think that this is kind of boring, and that may be true for you, but actually they're very, very important. The author is summarizing here the whole storyline of the Old Testament by naming all of the key characters in the stories. And as he does so, he shapes the genealogies to emphasize two key lineages. First is the line of the promised messianic king. So lots of space is dedicated to tracing the line of Judah that led all the way 
to King David, to whom the Messianic promise was given. And then from David, the author traces that line up into his own day. The other family line that receives lots of attention here is that of the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, who of course served in the temple. And so right from the start, you can see the two main themes, the author's hope of the Messiah coming to build a new temple, and it's rooted in these ancient genealogies. Now after that, the author moves into the stories about David, and most of these are going to be familiar to you from the book of Samuel, but again, there's some really important differences. So first of all, the author leaves out all of the negative stories about David where he's portrayed as weak or immoral. So Saul chasing David around the desert and persecuting him, the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, all of that is gone. And what's left are the stories that portray David as a good guy. And not only that, there's also new additional material that you won't find in the book of Samuel that shows David in a very positive light. So there's a large block of chapters where David makes preparations for the temple. He arranges resources and builders and Levites and choirs. And not only that, the author also portrays David as a Moses-like figure. God gives David plans for building the temple just as he gave plans to Moses for building the tabernacle. So why all this new material about David? The author's not trying to hide David's flaws. He knows that anybody can go read about them in the book of Samuel. Rather, he's trying to portray David as the ideal king in order to make him an image or a type of the future Messiah from the line of David. It's very similar to how Jeremiah or Ezekiel spoke of the coming Messiah as a new David. This is most clear in how the author retells the story of God's covenant promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17. When you compare the story with its parallel in 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that the author of Chronicles is highlighting that neither David nor Solomon nor any of the kings from his line were the messianic king, and that when the Messiah does come, he will be a king like David. And so for this author, these stories about David from the past are what sustain his hope for the future. Go online, finish that. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. In our times, when a large city or a large rally would occur because of winning a maybe a victorious sporting event, or more importantly, military campaigns, campaigns sometimes they have a ticker tape parade have you heard of that we really don't have those now but we have this time where people throw tape out the windows and just everyone celebrates in fact the first one was 1886 when they were going to commemorate the statue of liberty and, and they were marching the parade down and people threw out of their windows ticker tape and it just filled the area in fact the largest ticker tape parade was in 1945 the allied victory over japan over 5,000 tons of paper, confetti, and cloth streamed down in victory. We won! In the Old Testament, they didn't do this. In the Old Testament, when there was a military campaign of victory and everyone winning and celebrating, instead what they would do is they would have the king build a palace. How nice for him, huh? But all the people agreed, build him a palace. He's worthy of it. So David does that. He, this made sense because if you take a look at this picture here, look at some of the military campaigns that David had. He pushed out the enemies. All the different ites were around. And he just pushed them all around and pushed them out of the way. And now they could live in safety and peace. David 
rightfully so, in their minds, should build a palace. In fact, we read about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 up to where we're at now. At this point in the narrative, the chronicler has not said much about who's going to be on this throne. You notice that even in the video there. The Messiah, it's not even talked about. It's more about David and his military campaigns in his palace. David fought many battles and built this great place for himself. In fact, if you remember, we talked a little bit of that in 2 Samuel 7, where he met with Nathan, and Nathan's like, yeah, oh great, build a palace, and now I'm going to build one for the Lord. Now he decides to build a temple for God. David wanted a house, but God wanted a royal family, passed on. A royal dynasty, not a physical building. David was not to build a house for God. Instead, God would make a house out of David. And we saw that David was not going to be the one building that temple. Instead, it would be his son who would build that temple. And this is stated again in 1 Chronicles 17, where God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, this covenant that he made to David is now being stated again. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, 5 through 10. So David said, My son Solomon is younger and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord should be of great magnitude. It should be just this beautiful place. So again, he built this palace out of cedar, and at first he was like, let me just build a little place for the Lord. Oh no, that's not the case. For the Lord should be wonderful, and the fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. Therefore, I will make preparations for it. So David made extensive preparations before his death. Then he called his son Solomon and charged him to build the house for the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 7, David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. Here's the Lord speaking to David. You have shed much blood and fought many wars. You are not to build the house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son. I will be his father. And I will, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Because David had killed so many, because he was that king who was that general type of person and slaughtered many people, he was disqualified to build the temple. He was only to prepare for it, and his son, who would come, he was qualified to be the one to construct it. David prepared it, Solomon was the one to construct it. As a forerunner of Jesus, now we're getting to Christ here, as a forerunner of Jesus, these men have been showing the people what the Messiah would be like in different ways, how they could anticipate the Messiah. David was a 
royal warrior, a man of war. But at this point, it doesn't tell much in this book here that he was a man of peace. The more of the focus is he was this warrior. In fact, the word peace isn't really there. Whereas Solomon is different. Solomon was a man of rest and peace. A prince of peace. And there's a play with words here. There's kind of like a pun here. Solomon sounds much like the Jewish, the Hebrew word, shalom. Solomon, shalom. In fact, this is the only place where a human gets the word shalom put with their name. Peace, Solomon. Shalom, Solomon. Out of Solomon, there would be this long-awaited temple where they could come and meet with the Lord and God's name would be glorified. How does this point to Christ? These passages relate to Christ in many ways. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts 13. Acts is right after the Gospels. Acts 13.33. Multiple times I... I take time and I just go, oh, look, the New Testament's quoting the Old Testament. Wow, look at that. Here's a great example of this. Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Let me do, do verse 32 here. We tell you the good news, the gospel is that word, that evangelion, we tell you the gospel, what God has promised to our fathers. So the good news, the gospel, was in the Old Testament. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Notice how it's capitalized. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is all stated in his word. He goes on. It's interesting that Acts 13 quotes Psalm chapter 2, which quotes 2 Samuel 7, which is found again in 1 Chronicles 17 and shows up in our passage today. This is all about building up, progressively revealing who Jesus is in this line. He would come from David. He would be a man of peace. And this is the great Messiah. Let's go to Hebrews. I have more passages, but because of time, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. One of the main aspects of this promise fulfillment of this type that we see in the Old Testament, Solomon would be this man of peace. He would bring rest and peace. And he gets this thing, he will be my son, I will be my father, and this is passed on to Christ. Again, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many times, in many various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. Look at verse 5. Let's go to 4. So He became much superior to the angels, as the name has inherited is superior to theirs. He is greater than angels, greater than all the other ones that have come before. Look at verse 5. For to 
who did the angel, did God ever say, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Quoting the book of Acts. Quoting in 1 Samuel there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Christ is this one. Christ has conquered the enemy. He is that divine warrior like David was. But also, more importantly, is this. And let's end with this. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Just like David was this royal king, Christ is the royal king. But just as Solomon was to be this man of peace, this prince of peace, so is Christ. Most importantly is this. Romans chapter 5, just the first few verses here. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Christ has brought us peace and rest and harmony between God and man. Christ is our peace. Christ is the Prince of Peace. He is the One. We no longer have to have fear of God's judgment. Christ brings us Jesus, before he goes to the cross in John 14, says, I bring you peace. Not as the world brings peace. Don't look to them for peace. Don't look to your leaders and your kings and your armies and governments for peace. He brings a peace, most importantly, between us and God. So here it is, people. God in the Old Testament has been revealing himself in different ways. And now he starts to say, now there will be peace. And Christ is that peace. One of the most important things you need in life, you need air, you need water, you need food. I just saw the temperatures tomorrow. We need warmth. You need peace with God. And the only way, the only way you can do that is through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Savior and Lord. Remember last week? Turn to Christ for peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Then the peace of God, I encourage you, relinquish, surrender, total surrender, to find peace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you as we go through the Old Testament, we get to see glimpses of who you are, your character and your your nature and the beauty of what you're about and lord i thank you that you have brought us peace through your son because otherwise we would be under the wrath of god and none of us would survive until midnight we would be all done but you brought us peace and jesus we celebrate you
And if there are people in this room who need peace between you and them, may they turn to Christ today. May they surrender. Let all their kingdoms fall and live for the kingdom of God. And those who struggle because of the turmoils of life, may they find peace in you, a peace that passes all understanding. And that can be only found in Christ. So today, as we stand and sing our last song, we surrender our lives to the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our last song?